Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. So we are getting deeper and deeper into the pandemic, and it's clear that many people are losing. They're losing their jobs. Unfortunately, some people are even losing their lives. But the one area of life which seems to be winning at the moment is digital life. We're spending our lives more and more online, even before the crisis we were. But the digital sector, digital companies, digital apps, companies like Zoom seem to be benefiting from this crisis. Um, And I don't know whether our increasing dependence on digital is actually lending itself to a good life. Uh, William Powers, I'm going to call him Bill, but his his formal name is is William Powers, um, is a a longtime tech thinker, writer. Uh, He now is working on a responsible AI startup. He spent the last few years at MIT. Ten years ago, he wrote a really important and interesting and, at the time, influential book called Hamlet's Blackberry a practical philosophy for building a good life in the digital age. Uh, 2010 seems not just 10 years ago, but a century ago. Bill, uh, you remember 2010 when when Hamlet's Blackberry came out? How distant does that seem now? It seems very distant in one sense, Andrew, because a decade is a long time and culture has changed. Technologies have changed tremendously. But at the same time, um, the issues that I wound up speaking with a lot of people about at the time, including you, because of the book, are still very present. So it's sort of like, especially now during this crisis for various reasons, it's sort of a back to the future feeling about those questions and the impact of these technologies on how we live. We are, of course, for better or worse, talking to each other over the internet today on Zencaster. Uh, Bill, how important is building a good life um, in the digital age today? How how can you help people who are increasingly relying on digital to get through the pandemic um, enrich their lives rather than impoverish them? Mm-hmm. Well said. I love the way you phrased that, Andrew. Um, I, you know, my book has a sort of a, um, I don't want to call it a solution because it's not like, you know, an all embracing fix for the many things that are problematic in digital life. But in terms of everyday happiness and um, a sense of sort of being rooted in your own life, which I think we're often missing because of our screens and how much they dominate our lives. Um, I proposed basically in the book, drawing on a lot of historical periods and philosophers of the past, past technology revolutions, I propose that there's a lot of power in rituals and we can have rituals around our, what we now call screen time around, um, our devices 
um, how we live with them, where we live with them, how we access them, how we don't, that are very simple but can have massive impacts on our lives. I wrote about that in the book. I talked about what we called internet Sabbaths uh, that we took in my family for five years before I wrote the book. And I think those kinds of ideas are still still kind of blossoming and still useful. For, for those of us who now increasingly rely, though, on digital to connect with the outside world, um, how do you expect this crisis to shape our digital lives? Is it going to make us more or less in the long run, as hopefully the crisis will eventually end, will it make us more or less dependent on digital? I think it will, I think it will in a funny way, have a little of each in that you know, Zoom in particular is really having a massive uh, influence, positive largely, I think, on people's lives. We're able to continue with our work and our social lives through these, through these virtual rooms that we're gathering in through Zoom and other apps. But obviously, that's the one everyone's talking about and everyone seems to be using. So I think we'll be more comfortable with that and we'll probably want to continue exploring new ways we can use that way of connecting. And I'm sure there will be unbelievable number of new companies that will be working on new spins on how that works and perhaps make it somehow, I don't know how this would be, but humanize it even further. So in that sense, I think it will be more online time, possibly in a good way. And then on the other side of it, I think that, I mean, I sense in people I know and in my own family, I'm here with my wife in our house, sheltering in our house and with our undergraduate son who's home from college doing his classes online on Zoom. Um, I'm sensing, a you know, a new kind of screen weariness that's emerging. Um, partly it's just about how hard it is to pull yourself away from the internet anyway. And now with the news being so gripping and often so sad, um, I feel like there's kind of a, been a big mood shift downward. It's partly a result of our connectedness and that is going to endure in people's memories and maybe want them to have new ways of behaving with their screens, maybe new rituals of the kinds that I like to think about. Do you think that this crisis is going to um, reinvent our concept of analog of the physical? Is it going to make us realize the, va- the, the real value of of physical interaction, of going to restaurants, of meeting friends, of not doing everything online once the crisis has ended? I like to think that it would have a kind of a long-term impact in that regard, and that we will not only be ecstatic to go back to the physical world and the analog world and enjoy it again and, and do our work there and gather for drinks and all those things we love to do. I would like to think we'll forever never forget this moment, but I remember vividly uh, after 9-11 that people said um, the world is being changed forever. Americans said um, we're not going to be divided um, amongst ourselves the way we have been. We're coming together now and we'll be one nation. Many, many other predictions about the lasting effects. And most of them actually didn't turn out to be true. Um, So not to be downbeat, but I'm a little skeptical of, especially if this is only a few months, of it resonating for that long. In the beginning, it'll be amazing and we'll be so happy, but I think we'll get back to normal. When historians look back at the early part of the 21st century, do you think this crisis will mark the real beginning of the digital age? 
because of the migration online by everybody together, you mean? Yeah. Well, I feel the digital age has fully begun already. Um, many of us were Zooming, you know, for work mostly. Um, it may be a new chapter in um, comfort with a kind of socializing that we all have had both excitement about and misgivings about, I think, in the last decade or two as it's increased. And so maybe what I'm saying is we might come out of it with a more sophisticated and nuanced take on the good and the bad of internet life and move forward in a way that could be a new digital age. Maybe like digital age chapter two could be what we're seeing the start of. I won't say digital age 2.0. That's no, too no, much please do not. No, no, we hate that. <laughs> <laughs> what about the tech backlash? Some people are arguing that, um, that, that the pandemic marks the end of the tech backlash because it underlines how important these companies are. And a number of tech billionaires have, um, have, have, have shown their best side during the crisis. Uh, Jack Dorsey, for example, the CEO both of Twitter and Square, uh, earlier this week gave up, I think, 25% of his, his wealth, over a billion dollars, to, to fight the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill Gates, of course, I mean, he's not really a, a, a digital billionaire, but he's a tech billionaire, has also uh, proved to be very valuable as a, as a sort of, as, as an investor on the front line of the, the fight against the, the virus. Um, do you think that people will forget about the dangers of Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg and surveillance capitalism? Well, I don't think so. I mean, I think that, I don't know if I am comfortable calling it a tech backlash or a tech lash, as some people like to say, because what it's been from the start, which was basically, it took off in earnest in 2016, um, it's it's a questioning. I know very few people who want to tear down the whole thing, you know, and feel like it's, it's destroying civilization. But what it's been is a lot of very serious questions about, about humanity, about the quality of our lives under digital, about fairness in terms of algorithms, having biases and negative effects. And in terms of the business model, which surveillance capitalism, the book by Zuboff, you know, has started a whole new conversation. I cite that book in all my talks. Now I gave one in LA just a few weeks ago before the shutdown. And it, people really want to talk about it. And this particular gathering was AI people mostly who are really on board for rethinking the whole revolution and in these regards that I mentioned. So I think, I think it's true that this is a moment where we're appreciating the upsides. Um, and I think it's fantastic that Jack Dorsey has done what he's done and these other generous moves that we're seeing by people in Silicon Valley. But I don't think those questions are going away. I mean, maybe I'm biased because the business I'm starting is about helping companies make their AI more responsible. So I could have a, a little bit of skin in the game here. But I do think that they're too big a set of questions to just vanish once the coronavirus is gone. I agree with you about Shoshana, Zab- uh, Shoshana Zuboff's book. Uh, Shoshana was on the show uh, last year. Uh, you've spent the last few years at uh, MIT in the Media Lab, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, was um, was uh, a very controversial area because of uh, Joy Ito, who had run the MIT Media Lab's association with Jeff- Jeffrey Epstein, 
Mm-hmm. Um, is there a feeling generally within MIT that technology needs to reinvent itself on, on the moral front to help build a good life? Are technologists uh, recognizing, because MIT has always you know, been such an important place for the generation of ideas and, and new businesses, do you get the sense that, that, that people finally understand that it's not enough just to claim that you're good? You actually have to go out and prove it? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, there's been a lot of terrific rhetoric about new thinking and so forth. And I think some of it is very sincere. In fact, I was at MIT for the last five years. And one of, um, one of the moments that I kind of treasure the most is as an observer, separate from my own work, was Tim Cook's um, 2017 uh, commencement speech at MIT, where he said, to a lot of people's surprise, he said, and I happen to have this quote on my desk uh, so I can read it. He said, I'm not worried about artificial intelligence giving computers the ability to think like humans. I'm more concerned about people thinking like computers without values or compassion, without concern for consequences. Mm. And I found with my students at MIT, at the Media Lab, both undergrad and graduate students, I found that they were having the same awakening, that they are in a position where they can make a difference on this front and that um, it really is in many ways up to them. I mean, they're driving the future of this industry and it's up to the public to care more. And I think to, you know, this goes to the question of regulation and all these things that need to happen to reshape um, how the whole thing is unfolding. Zuboff, I saw her speak recently. She calls for, you know, democracy to solve this problem. And I think that's, that's a huge part of the puzzle. In terms of technology, what do you think are the greatest challenges? I know you're doing what you call a responsible AI starter. Is it teaching AI the good life? Is it getting AI to understand Hamlet's Blackberry? No, you know, I, in my opinion, I mean, I'm not one of these people who thinks that AI will someday be indistinguishable from humans or even exceed us in its ability to be, you know, in a sense, human, to, to be able to think like us and create. I don't think that's ever going to happen. But AI can get a lot better at reflecting our values and at making decisions with it. You know, AI is just run by a bunch of uh, by decision trees, basically, instructions that we program in. Those instructions can be taken to a better level, to a level that accounts for how humans really are and how we want our societies to function. It's all, it's all very rough draft now, in my opinion, and we need to get it to a, to a, to a more working uh, version that, that leads society as a whole, as it gets more dependent on these machines, to a good life collectively. I think AI can help, and it's up to us in concert with the machines to do that. And the only way we can do that is to get the algorithms to be more like us. What, what seems uh, obvious now is that one of the great problems from the pandemic is it's going to compound inequality. It's already clear that the pandemic, while of course blind to people's race or, or wealth or gender, is having a much more catastrophic impact on poorer people for mm-hmm. Various democratic, various demographic, physiological, and economic reasons. What do you think the role of digital can be um, in trying to fix this increasingly corrosive inequality 
that um, that, that that corrupts our society? Well, this is this is a great question. You know, this is a way. Obviously, this is in a sense a way in which data science, which is a sort of outgrowth of algorithms, a science that uses algorithms in potentially powerful ways, can help us. You know, we're all now. I don't want to speak for everybody, but these this da- data that comes up every day on the virus, I think has gotten more of the public into the idea of the power of data. And so I think that the massive data we now have about inequality and that have been featured in lots of books, of course, for the last 15 or 20 years that have, that have been driven, driv- driven the conversation about capitalism being broken, maybe now that can have a broader impact on people. And we won't just be talking about how crappy it is that the billionaires, the 1%, have all the, and especially the tech billionaires have all the money, and it isn't the world a lousy place. We can actually visualize ways to fix it with the help of AI. I think that is very possible. And I hope that, in a way, this new popularization of data might take us to that place. I'm with you completely that we need we need a fix for the inequalities in not just our society, but the world as society. And it's being exposed now in a very, very useful way. And um, will, that, will that fight against inequality, will it come through the use of AI in data or a more overt political initiative? I think the political is the most important. I mean, there's no data set that, you know, can change the policies that are driving this inequality on its own. You know, data sets don't vote. They don't go. You know, my first job out of university was working in the U.S. Senate and as an aide. And that's that's the kind of place where it has to happen. And this terrible polarization we have between the two parties and no, you know, sort of no middle ground, particularly on some of these questions of economics and and uh, capitalism, really, and it's broken. It's absolutely broken. And um, if a more general a- awareness and popular, really, uh, consciousness raising about this problem comes out of this crisis, it will have been. I won't say it will have been worth it because it wouldn't have been worth people dying, but it would. It will be a positive side effect, I think, of what we're going through. And I think there's a good chance of that, actually. Finally, I can't resist asking the author of Hamlet's Blackberry this question. Uh, Bill, we're all stuck at home. We need stuff to read. Um, I don't want to hear Camus' plague, and and everyone should have already read your book, Hamlet's Blackberry. (laughs) Give me another book that might comfort people, that might get them to think or rethink their relationship with the world when we're so isolated and scared and depressed about the world outside. Yeah, so I want to recommend a book that um, is on some of these questions about the tech future and humanity and how they can kind of each enrich each other in a way. Um, And it's a newer book. It's just from a year or two ago. It's called Stand Out of Our Light, Stand Out of Our Light by James Williams, a former Google engineer who is now a philosopher at Oxford, actually. Mm. And, it's, and didn't that sorry sorry didn't that book come out of an essay he wrote for the Economist, the prize-winning essay? He wrote an essay for a prize competition called the Nine Dots Prize, which the prize is your essay gets to be turned into a book. So he won that competition, and I think it's a Cambridge University uh, right 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 sorry yeah. competition. But Oxford 
uh, but he's at Oxford himself. And the thing I want to say about this book for, for folks looking for reading in, in, in this period, I find my attention span is very, very short these days. It's a very short book, <laughs> and it's what they call a slim polemic in publishing, and a wonderful read, so thoughtful, so human, and really you come away from it optimistic by the end, which I think we need some more of right now. What does he say that you missed in Hamlet's Blackberry? Well, he talks literally, uh, I mean, he's also very philosophical and draws on Socrates and some of these other people I talked about, but he's been inside Google. And so he talks about how basically what we're living through is, is, is an attention revolution that's bad for the humans because our attention is being cannibalized every day by algorithms that do not have our best interests in mind and that we can change this. And he actually makes it sound like it wouldn't be that hard to change if we just had an awakening. And the book really is that. If, if folks read it, I think they'll find that it's a wonderful, a wonderful new perspective on these questions. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.